We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. Welcome to this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. You had to go for it because there was nothing. And it was jolly good, of course. And you had an opportunity to develop yourself also in that direction. And, and, and meeting ministries and meeting uh, kind of physicians, organizations. And that, that started off day one. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today. We are taking a tour of the PA profession around the world. And today we learn about the profession in the Netherlands. We speak with Quinton Driesen about his role in starting the PA profession and his experiences as a PA over the past two decades. The Netherlands were the first in Europe to start this profession, and they have a unique model of education that will be the envy of all of our pre-PA listeners and probably quite a few of our faculty as well. As always, you may learn more about our guests and their institutions on our papathpodcast.com website. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Good morning, or good afternoon, I believe. Yeah, hi. How are you? I'm fine. Yeah. Good. Good. Quinton, I'm Kevin Lohenry. It's very nice to meet you. Likewise, uh, Kevin. Yeah, nice to meet you. Your Did I pronounce your name correctly? Quinton, yeah. Okay, yeah. excellent. It's, and it's is it like the, like, like the prison? Okay, and is it Vendendrieschen? Yeah, it is just plain S, so Driesen. But, Driesen, uh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for the opportunity. If you could maybe share a little bit about your own journey to becoming a PA first, it would be really interesting to hear how you ended up not only as a PA, but then as a, a leader in your profession yeah. nationally. Well, like, like many PAs, you start a PA education when you already had some background and, and I had already an experience of 20 years in healthcare. So after my high school, I started the study of physiotherapy. Uh, which I broke up after two and a half years. And then I became a registered nurse in a hospital in uh, Amsterdam, the same hospital where I was born. Uh, and you follow an in-hospital training to nurse. And uh, after that, and after working in uh, several functions in hospital, I worked some years for an insurance company uh, with sort of a healthcare maintenance organization. And afterwards, I went back in hospital as an intensive care uh, nurse. And that was about, uh, that's nearly 20 years ago. In 2003, I get acknowledged for the first time with the PA program that was starting then. So I, I was working on several specialities and departments in, in, uh, in the hospital, which was a really a rich, very rich um, experience and then i was about 40 years and i had a family with four kids and well still 
hungry to get some further and learn more. So that that was about 2003. And shall I go on or? Profession, as I read, started in the Netherlands around 2001 as a pilot. And then uh, the university started picking it up in 2003 and started to grow. And, and actually, as I understand it, really the first PA programs in Europe as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in Europe, we, we didn't know PAs at, at all. Though in, in Germany, in, in the military field, you had PAs working from uh, United States, but, but really not in public, just in a military uh, role. So that, that was the first PA program in, in, in Europe, yeah. And, and you entered that program in 2003? Yeah, and, and what you say is right. In 2001, there was a first pilot of a group of uh, PAs uh, thoracic, thoracic surgery and, and uh, emergency department that, that started a sort of a program, well, just developing and changing on the run. Uh, but 2003, the, the program was really accredited and started off in Utrecht and, and Nijmegen. And, and the whole idea, yeah, different from the US, eh, you, you started in half 60s, uh, really with a big shortage of, of uh, physicians in a very big country, in rural areas. The Netherlands, well, we have a wonderful system, a small country, uh, short lines between healthcare, uh, government, uh, et cetera. And it was more here that we were looking forward. We had a Ministry of Health who was looking forward. Well, and she said she was a doctor herself. Well, in 2020, we have a real shortage on, on physicians and hand on, the, uh, on, on patients. Uh, due to people getting older and, and uh, all the technical developments in care. And she was thinking about how, how are we going to change that? And, and she foresaw that a, a lot of doctors were really very highly specialized doing, well, rather simple work. work. And she thought, well, we should form a medical mid-level provider instead of that. So that, that was the idea. And I think we in the Netherlands were very lucky that the idea came from a government and that was willing to cooperate starting off this introduction of a new profession. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of paved the way for success, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. because, well, we had all the troubles and, and you know, in, in America, you went through the process. Doctors weren't really waiting for us, didn't see the problem. Neither did the, the, the hospitals or um, the primary care organizations. So, yeah, there was a really strong pushing up this new concept. Like you, you are selling something, you, but you have to tell people that they have a problem. They need it. <laughs> in, in the United States, when the government tells us uh, they're here to help us, we're usually a little bit skeptical. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the skepticism was really huge uh, and, uh, sure. and and really the first years, it was really swimming, swimming against the stream uh, like a salmon. And well, that really was uh, a hard time, but also a very interesting time. And it really, yeah, it formed you as, as a human being, uh, uh, this development. So yeah, well, you know all about it. Uh, great, great personalities. Uh, professors in medicine uh, with lots of experience and, and they really knew how to put you on your little place down under. I, I, I like anecdotes, Sam. 
one of my colleagues he's uh, in in our university in the pa program and we started in the same group in 2003 and it was the story about the thoracic surgery who was had a surgeon was well on a very high um, podium and uh, when we walking rounds uh, on the on the ward uh, on, on top, on, on the first place came the professor and then, well, all the other doctors. And on the end of the row, there was a PA student that was my colleague. And but the patient that he waved aside all the doctors and said hello to the PA student because he had learned him from uh, starting of his uh, admission in, in, on, on the wards. And he took him along the whole progress uh, before operation and after operation. And he was addressing to the PA student. And, and there stood the thoracic surgeon, a bit ashamed. Hey, you have to talk to me. <laughs> but that, yeah. that's typical, that, that's typical uh, the, the need for a PA in that process of uh, a patient coming in the hospital for a big operation and uh, needs a human being who takes him through the process. And maybe uh, uh, in all humility, we, we, we PAs are very good in that role, standing beside the patient and, and knowing and, and talking his language and bringing something different than a young um, medical student who has a lot of theoretical bagage, but not so many skills in communication. And were many of the, the first PAs in the Netherlands similar to you in that they had extensive experience as nurses or in the healthcare system? Um, is, is that still the case today or was that just to get it going? No, no still, uh, you, you, in the Netherlands, we have a, uh, only a master's program and you, you can only enter if you have a bachelor in healthcare with working experience. And so, yeah, we see, of course, nowadays, uh, a lot of students in bachelor uh, programs who are already planning to become a PA and well, they know I need two years and then I hop on. And, but still we have also a big group of, of students who are in their forties with, with a lot of experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You have to be a, a physiotherapist or, or a nurse and some others, yeah. Sure, and, and that differs from your medical school track in the Netherlands. Your medical students go right out of undergraduate training into their graduate trainees as doctors. Yeah, yeah. Well, they um, normally they have a, a year between, but yeah, it, it is similar, I think, uh, in the USA. And I think, at least my experience in the United States, I think that, that that's where we're different sociologically as a profession, and I'm really delighted to hear it's similar in the Netherlands in that that experiential piece of working with patients for at least two years or more, I think has always been a hallmark of our profession and our ability to relate to patients because we're often already in the, in the trenches, if you will, providing patient care before we become PA students. And so it's just natural for us to have a different outlook uh, in that group of, as you described, the surgeon and all the physicians, and et cetera. Yeah. And still, the, the, it is a really a, a very big transformation that these nurses have to go through because it's not just we have these communication skills, but, but we, we really have to learn to think different and act different. It is unbelievable and, and, and it's impressive how people make this change in two and a half years. And of course, it's not only this two and a half year of the PA program because afterwards it's long life learning and, and still a lot of competencies I have learned after uh, uh, finishing the program, 
but it, it is really incredible because oh that's what you have to tell them all the time how is it in, how is it possible that you do in two and a half year what i did as a physician in 10 years and, and if you have to explain to patients and relatives you are not the same as a doctor still you come very close through another way another process it is amazing yeah. So you became a PA. Uh, it's a was it a thirty month program at the time you went through? Yeah. Yeah. It's a thirty month okay. master program. Yeah. Okay. And then when you graduated, did you end up back at that original hospital in Amsterdam that you had been a nurse at? No, no, no. I, I was I was trained in in Nijmegen in uh, uh, University Hospital, and directly after finishing my education, I uh, started working in uh, primary care. Well, what we call in, in the Netherlands, it's like uh, a family practitioner who does primary care and, and urgent care. And so in the Netherlands, everybody first sees a general practitioner before uh, going to a hospital, unless, of course, he's picked off the, the streets by uh, an ambulance. Uh, you always see a general practitioner first, even if it's quite yeah, urgent, the care. Yeah. So, so in the I Netherlands... Mean, in that role, are you kind of a family practice person during normal business hours? And then those clinics, because of the, maybe some of the rural nature of some of them, are offering urgent care services after hours and on the weekends? Yeah. So you have you can work as a PA in uh, after hours, uh, after, and, and that, that is still a primary care setting. So you left and you went into primary care? Yeah. Because when we started, our group started, they just picked up a few departments in, in our hospital here, said, well, we have to start, just pick a few students and, and go. And, and they, well, I was working in, in gynecology and they didn't really, well, they, they rather had uh, what we call verloskundige, um, how do you call midwives in, in a sort of PA role. And I, th I think that a more broad and generalistic position shoots me more than than in hospital and that, that was really wow an experience in in primary care with all the experience in, in in hospital that you could develop so so well in that role but that was really completely new because there was no pas in primary care we had one pa uh, from the usa she was really uh, marcia andela the first one she and she came from the united states and started working in 2000 two or three in primary care. So that was one. And, and then it was a long time, uh, me and, and a few others, because it was really, it was more in hospital that it developed quite quickly. And the numbers in primary care keep very low for a lot of years. Yeah. So, so the Ministry of Health in your country initiated the profession based on this projection of a shortage of physicians down the road. And my initial presumption was that was going to be a shortage of primary care providers, but it sounds like there was a sh shortage throughout the various specialties. Yeah, and, and it was not really a shortage. It was more okay. a shift. It was more a shift in, 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 yeah, in workload, and still we don't really have a shortage now, nowadays, although in some regions in the Netherlands, there is a shortage on, on primary care, uh, healthcare providers. And we see now that, that there's a lot of young physicians don't find a job. It, it, it Maybe in some specialisms, it's easier to find a job as physician assistant than a cardiologist or a surgeon. 
Sure, and from a hospital system, I would imagine there is a salary differential between the two that might drive that decision. Um, yeah, it's not. Uh, yeah, but it, it, it's not only the salary. It is um, maybe some doctors think that it is is a point, but it is also that people. Yeah, it's rather inst institutionalized huh, this role of of PA and also of, of a nurse practitioner. And they they really see it as a as a as a function they need rather than putting bring in a, a physician or a cardiologist or orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. When I started in internal medicine right out of PA school, my supervising physician was an internist. And at the time, he had a decision to make. He could he could hire another physician, which would then carve out some of his patients and ultimately his revenue. Yeah. Or he could hire a, a non-physician provider, a mid-level, a, a physician extender, if you will, that could help him manage his patients so that he continued to retain all of those patients and HMO contracts and things like that. So I think in the end, he went the route of having a PA so that the roughly 20 to 30 people he turned away every day to urgent care because he was full could still be seen in his family of providers, right? Is, is that a similar thing there that maybe those physicians who are choosing a PA are saying the same thing that I want to keep those patients to be part of my regular process? Yeah, I think it is. Although a lot of more and more doctors, they work for an hospital, not not in their own private practice. Physician, sure. practice. Yeah. 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 Okay. So how many years did you spend in primary care before you started to think about education and leadership? Yeah, well, leadership started at day one of the, being a student because there was no uh, professional organization. There was no there was nothing, there was no legislation. So we, we just started with our, the group of students and start, started our Dutch AAPA in 2004. So you, you had to go for it because there was nothing. And well, that, that, was, that was jolly good, of course. Yeah, you had an opportunity to develop yourself also in that direction yeah. and, and, and meeting ministries and meeting uh, all kinds of physicians, organizations. And that, that started off day one. And after about uh, 10 years, I started in um, education role. But I, I always, I combined it. So I still work in family practice three days a week and two days I work uh, for the university. Very good. Yeah. And, and I think the educators that are listening to this podcast and, and we're, we're hearing from many of them over the course of the last year, be really interested in your, your educational model. Because as I understand it, the students are not in class five days a week like we have here in the United States. They're actually in the clinic. They're working for the people that are sponsoring them, um, which yeah. provides you a lot, a lot of flexibility as a, as a program leader. Yeah. Um, well, we, we have a wonderful system, of course, and our students are really very lucky because they don't pay. They get paid. Yeah. <laughs> they get paid. It's incredible. Huh? So... You have to find a physician or an organization that hires you as a student from day one. And so you are sure you have a job after two and a half years. And, and you only go to classes one day a week. And you work from day one as a PA student on the department or ward or wherever um, in the role of a physician assistant. Okay. And well, roughly you work two days a week. But in that position, you go to school one day and you follow rotations two days a week. So our system, we have a module, a dual system 
30 years once, and every three months you have a new module, uh, which is follows the, the, the head specialisms of, of medicine. So you have surgery for three months, and you have internal medicine for three months, and so on. You go to school, you, you study the knowledge about uh, surgery, and you follow rotations in surgery at the same time. So that is a wonderful yeah, mix of, uh, of knowledge and practice. And at the same time, you, you are in school one day a week with BA students that work in different fields. And you discuss all these medical problems from different kind of views and, and uh, experience. So it's a wonderful mix of theory and practice. Oh, I can imagine. So if, you, if you're facilitating that group on that one day a week, you might have a case that that kind of touches on all the different aspects of specialty care. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, so, so yeah. Um, what more can I say about that? And we, we say, well, we study in, you can't learn internal medic medicine in three months. And so we pick out uh, like five big problems. Uh, like like uh, liver uh, diseases, like anemia, like heart failure. You you go very deep in that, and the way of uh, studying this problem should lead you to be able to transfer your knowledge to other problems in internal medicine. So we we don't study, we don't learn it all, because then you would be like a medical student. We have the same literature, the same books. They are, uh, well, half of it is in American, are, uh, are similar to your books in, in the United States. But you, of course, you can read it all, but you, you are examined or you, you are assessed on five teams in internal medicine. And of course, there are more problems, problems than, than only five, but, but that's the difference between a doctor and, and a medical student and a patient. Yeah. And, and then the 30 months total, are you consistently rotating every three months for 30 months? Yeah. yeah. Well, but it's a bit shorter because we have um, eight specialty uh, modules and then the last half year is, is, uh, is graduation. So it, that is for your scientific research and, and um, development on the work spot. Uh, so it's about eight modules with uh, rotations and then a, a half year graduation. So most of your faculty are there that one day a week to help facilitate some of these case-based discussions. Is that correct? So sorry. Uh, so so the fact so the faculty in your university program um, yeah. are they typically there for that one day a week to help facilitate those conversations on the cases yeah. and and topics, and then the rest of the time they're working clinically. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And, and well, we we uh, educators we uh, visit them on on uh, the same uh, spot where they rotate and where they where they work, and it, it gives us a lot of information what is happening in healthcare and, and how the student is really developing on on the, the learning spot. Uh, yeah. And and just so I'm clear, Quintet. So what I'm hearing you say is students are in class one day a week. They're working for their sponsor as a PA student two days a week. And then they're on a rotation, which would be at a, likely at a different location in yeah. a rotating specialty two days a week. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and then their, their sponsor or their, their, their department of physician that pays them, they pay them for five days a week. 
Your health system actually is covered by your taxes, correct? 
have yeah. the national health service system. So, so there has to be yeah. an economic component yeah. to that. Yeah. So, so in, in the Netherlands, everybody has an insurance. So, so the accessibility of, of, of care is really on a, on a high level. And uh, the reimbursement of care delivered by PA is also arranged. In the first years, should always be a doctor uh, shaking the head of a patient. And then he could write his bill to the insurance company. And now it can be that a patient doesn't see uh, the physician at all, or maybe only on the, in the operation room. And, and then the, the, the PA takes care of the reimbursement process. Do the PAs first assist in the OR as well? Yeah, of course, a completely different scale. We are really a small country with about 18 million inhabitants. I think we have about 12,000 um, general practitioners. Maybe we have about uh, 20,000 uh, physicians. And, and so I think in the US you have about uh, 100, 150,000 graduate PAs or even more yeah. now. Yeah. So we are now with 2,000 PAs. It's like it's a small amount uh, compared to the US, but they, they really are everywhere in healthcare. Uh, we started more in, in hospital care. Right? Only the last three years we are developing in, in primary care, more in elderly care. Still about 70% of the PAs are working in hospital care, but in all, all fields. And there's no national certification exam, correct? We don't have a certification exam, no. Um, we have a national competency framework that is all, we have five universities, five programs that do this PA um, education, and we are registered by law. So the Dutch healthcare law, you have to uh, be registered, and that can only be with a diploma of an accredited program. There, there is a uniform PA uh, level of education but not a certification exam. But okay. when you are registered, you have to re-register after five years and you have to prove your CME. And we do that in the same system as physicians. Our CME is registered in the same system and in, in a quality register. We just discussed this afternoon. We, I had a meeting with, with uh, the UK and uh, Germany, uh, German colleagues about also this matter because we know the American, the Americans work with a national exam. The British are working with a national exam. We don't. And the, the recognition worldwide of PAs is still uh, yeah, in development. So if you want to work here in the Netherlands, you, you would be allowed if you had a, a permit and if you spoke the language. And still, we have a committee that is going to examine your, your CV and your competencies. But there's not an exam. Can you share a little bit about what it's like to be a practicing PA in the Netherlands? A typical day? A typical day. Well, my day is, is uh, I, I start 7.30 and, and uh, reading the, the post of, of last night. What happened in the emergency department, etc. And then... I see from eight to five, about 30 or 40 patients. Um, I do uh, visit people at home two, twice a day, I think. I do um, minor surgery 
I implant uh, IUDs, uh, I talk with physicians in hospital, I write letters, I write referrals, and I uh, supervise the, the nurses in our practice and the medical assistants in our practice. I visit people at home. Um, if they are um, really very sick and they're going to die in a short time, they have my phone number, so I go there at night or in the weekends. I do palliative sedation. I don't know if you know what that's, if I say it right. Go ahead and there explain we, it for us. Uh, so, so if, if um, people are really uh, in, in very a lot of pain or they're very short of breath and they really suffering very badly and we know you are going to die, but maybe it's, it's going to take two, two weeks or, or something like that. We bring in the, the subcutaneous needle and give them uh, morphine and and uh, midazolam, and they yeah, they really are in coma, and then they slowly are. Yeah, uh, yeah, we do that uh, in hospice here in the United States as well. Yeah. So this it's not uh, euthanasia. Euthanasia, uh, it's just give them medicine and they die immediately. Yeah, it's comfort care. Yeah, it's comfort care, and uh, so in the Netherlands, we, we can almost do anything as a PA, but we, you can't give euthanasia. Okay. You can do the other uh, comfort care. Sure. So, and that's not every day, but most times once a month, you have such a, a patient in your in your practice. And um, so it's a very full day. It's, yeah, I'm a really busy, busy PA, and, and I think most of our PAs have well similar days. Of course, if you work, you do the job twenty years, then you are on an other level than when you are just graduated. And that that's the, the lovely thing of this profession that you you are never ready, and you can always develop. And and we have we always work with a physician, so we are autonomous, but we always you work in a in a collaboration setting. If you two are well, I I'm always been lucky that they, my, my physician really enjoyed my development. So there were no boundaries at all. Yeah. And you see that more and more. That, that's why I think primary care is now getting really popular for PAs nowadays, because you see you can, you can develop more than, well, in, in an hospital where there's more hierarchic uh, system and you have to deal with other uh, doctors who are being trained and educated. That's a bit of yeah. my job. Well, yeah. Wonderful. Uh, and then salaries? What do uh, PAs write out of PA school? What, what can um, they receive? It, it is about between um, uh, 3,500 euros and 6,000 euros a month. Okay. Uh, so um, to compare, I think $1 is about... Uh, one yeah, one dollar is about uh, 0.7 euro. So yeah. normally it would be, I think, about uh, 80, 90 thousand dollars a year for a good good uh, position PA. Yeah, it's a bit yeah. a bit less than in the US, I think. And you do not pay malpractice in your country, or do you? We we are that is covered by the hospital or the the primary care organization. So we don't pay for it. We are just covered. That's great. Yeah, that is great. And then also about six weeks of holiday a year. Is that right? Yeah. 
<laughs> That's the one I think everybody over here is watering their mouths over. That would be wonderful to have that much holiday time. Yeah, but that's in general that in the U.S. you don't have a lot of vacation, huh? No, I think uh, you know. I always I, I was very fortunate to work with a group that was very generous and understood that you were going to work very hard like you do. So, so they want you to be well prepared to take good care of patients and you need to have downtime. So I, when I first started in practice, I had three weeks of vacation and a week of CME, but that was, that was pretty generous. I think most of our grads are, are coming out of PA school with two weeks. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't survive. Well, today, I mean, I think the Europeans have always had a very good philosophy about that. Um, sure. And yeah. maybe not so much with us. Well, this has been really interesting, Quinn. I really do appreciate you taking the time, especially at the end of your day there, to share with our audience about what's going on in the, in the Netherlands. I think it's a uh, congratulations on such a sustained success. Well, uh, I take that, but, but we really were in the in very, you know, we had a model. When we started, there was a model. And uh, there was a PA, the, the USPA. And so we, we could think about how, how, uh, do I have to grow? Uh, we had really help. A few people came to the Netherlands, like like Ken Harbert and, and Ruth Bolwerk. Uh, we, we got support from the AAPA uh, in, in the beginning of our professional organization. And so uh, like like Rick Roars uh, visited us. And, and so we, we had help. That was a big brother. Uh, that, that was really, really good. And, and certainly we, we went a, a, a different way in our education. But the two professions are really, they are similar. And so, so I think we all could, should, should be able to work in the U.S. And uh, USPA should be able to work here. And that may happen one day. We, we shall see, right? But, but remember, we are really a small country. Yeah? So don't yeah. come all. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Quinton, thank you so much. And, and uh, best of luck to you. And You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, Quentin Driesen, for his visit with us and his insights into the PA profession in the Netherlands. It was a real joy to learn more about the European movement and the Netherlands' unique curriculum. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Deborah Herman and Dr. Tamara Ritzema from George Washington University's PA program. We speak with them about the evolution of the PA profession in London, England, and throughout the United Kingdom, and we also talk about some of the unique aspects of George Washington's program and the importance of research in our profession. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Arizona.